Welcome to All Things Vegas, nourishing self-care for the helping professional. During our time together, we will explore a wide variety of topics relating to self-care, all especially geared to the helping professional. Our guests are all thought leaders and cutting edge providers in their respective fields of endeavor. They will offer not only helpful insights, but practical skills that you can begin to use immediately. Russell Colts is a professor of psychology at Eastern Washington University, and he is the director of the Inland Northwest Compassionate Mind Center in Spokane, Washington. He is an internationally recognized expert on compassion-focused therapy and has authored or co-authored scientific articles on various areas of psychology and authored several books about compassion-focused therapy and compassion. For a list of his books and TEDx talks, please see the show notes. So, Russell, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Really appreciate take, you taking time out of your day to, to hop on this call. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I think it's great. So I am always just so um, excited to talk about the, the, the concept and the, and the content around compassion. And certainly, again, for the, for the people that we have listening to this podcast, the helping professionals, um, the, the fact that a lot of us are not really very good at self-compassion. So, <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I think it's kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah, so, I, think I would agree. Yeah. So could you start out our conversation this morning by talking about what what is self-compassion and get us all on the same sheet of music with that? Sure. Well, I, I'll start just by sort of saying what compassion is. Okay. Um, and and compassion in in uh, compassion focused therapy, we define compassion as sensitivity to suffering combined with the motivation to alleviate and prevent it, which is a pretty standard sort of definition. And in in CFT, we talk about three flows of compassion. There's the the one that I think is is most typically understood, which when we say compassion, a lot of times I think we think about the compassion we feel for others when we see them suffering. And so I think that flow is pretty familiar. Uh, to people. But we think it's important to acknowledge two other flows. Um, one of the other flows is our ability to receive and benefit from compassion from others without, for example, uh, you know, feeling like a burden or having the inability to ask for help when we need it and things like that. And then self-compassion is our ability to sort of notice and observe when, when we're suffering or when we're struggling or when we're having a hard time and, and having the sort of same willingness to ask, uh, to consider, you know, what would be helpful to help me work with this difficulty that we would feel uh, toward anyone that we care about. So right. it, in some ways, it's like relating to your own pain the way you would relate to the pain of someone that you really cared about and, and only wanted to help. So this this whole idea of being able to translate that to self, um, you know, can you can, can you help me understand why so many of us find that so difficult to do? Well, I, I think there are general factors, and then I think there are ones that are mm -hmm. a little more specific to the healthcare uh, professions. I, I think in the healthcare profession specifically. Part of it is is that we sort of have this sense that, you know, if we've spent a lot of time in many years preparing to help others, th there should be this sense, I think, that we've got it all figured out, that, that somehow we shouldn't struggle. Or, or if we do, we should just be able to kind of sort it automatically. 
it should we should just already have those uh uh you know coping skills sort of woven into us and to an extent that's probably true i mean you know we learn some helpful things along the way and hopefully incorporate those into our lifestyle but being in healthcare uh certainly doesn't exempt us from the whole range of suffering that that any human being would face and the, the other part of that is you know we have the same tricky human brains that everyone else has and so when experiences of threat activate those brains even if we know all the things even if we have a lot of knowledge that could be very helpful that maybe your your average person who's in you know some other sort of field wouldn't have when when threat is activated in us and this is just the way evolution shaped our brains there's a dramatic narrowing of our attention and our thinking and reasoning and our ability to imagine possibilities that that really zeroes in on the perceived threat so even if we have we know in theory in a vacuum all of the things it's much harder to to utilize that knowledge when we're in threat because we become much more rigid you know less able to think flexibly be creative and and those sorts of things that's really hard um i think this is all sort of compounded by the the general sort of cultural context we find ourselves in in the west which is one that i i would argue doesn't uh doesn't engage with suffering generally very well at all i think that uh probably you know driven by commercial forces you know it's it's a really sort of convenient way to sell people things they don't need if you could convince them that you should just sort of be happy all the time mm-hmm. and and if you're not then there's something wrong with you and you just need to buy my thing that i'm selling and then you'll feel better and you'll be you know normal or how you want to be and i think there's this implicit way that normal human suffering and normal human struggle difficulty the things we all will face in our lives um gets pathologized it 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 gets uh framed in the culture as you know again you should sort of be happy all the time and if you're not maybe there's something wrong with you you should do something about that <laughs> and 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 that's it's it's just it's not a realistic reflection of the human condition you know human lives involve a lot of discomfort you know even if you're sort of like me kind of an example of the most privileged version of a human life right i'm a kind of cisgendered straight white male born into a, an educated middle class family um so you know i didn't have any particular struggles that are sort of unique to me or the group that uh, i'm a member of um, and yet still, I'm, I get sick, I lose people I love, I'm gonna die one day, you know, I have dreams that don't come true. Sometimes you fall in love with people who don't wanna be with you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Uh, I, there are days I'm sad, there are days I'm lazy, there are days I don't feel like it. And that's just part of the normal human condition. And I think we're sort of taught that when we see this stuff, we, we sort of reflexively think, oh, there's something wrong with me. And, and then I think, again, particularly to healthcare professionals, that that sort of pathologizing process can be magnified because we think, oh, but I should have it together. Even if it's okay for them to be struggling with this, I shouldn't be because I learned all the things. And so that, that can, uh, you know, it can trigger some shame on our part. Oh, that there must be really something uh, about maybe I'm a bad therapist. Maybe I'm a bad psychologist if I'm struggling with this stuff. And one thing, in, and this is really the reason compassion-focused therapy exists, when shame gets activated, 
it shuts us down. Shame doesn't inspire us. That sense of, oh, there's something wrong with me. There's something bad about me. It doesn't inspire us to, to think, oh, what would be helpful in addressing this suffering? It shuts us down and freezes us and, and tends to prompt avoidant behavior. Well, I'll just, you know, pop a beer and turn on Netflix and, and not think about that anymore because thinking about that's sort of unco too uncomfortable for me to bear because it makes me think, oh, there's something wrong with me, which isn't fun. So that's yeah. kind of my read on on why it's particularly tough for healthcare professionals. Well, and I think, you know, I, I totally, I, I totally can understand this whole idea of, you know, the fact that somehow because we have background, we have education, we have training, we have knowledge that we should have our stuff together, right? Yeah. And, and it doesn't mean that we don't, it just means that we're human beings. And I, I find it fascinating, as you said, that, you know, why we, why we have a hard time acknowledging that. Yeah. Well, and the self-care behaviors that, you know, compassion, one of the things we talk about in compassion-focused therapy all the time is a lot of times when people hear the word compassion, they think it's, oh, poor you. Let me, let me be nice. You know, let me see, you know, uh, you know, take a day off, whatever. And, and that's not really what compassion is about. Compassion is about like looking at suffering and saying, what do needs to be done to, to address this or to prevent it. And sometimes just doing the stuff we know is helpful is actually really hard, right? We all sort of know that regular exercise makes for a better human life. We know it. It reduces risk of all kinds of diseases, right? It extends our life expectancy. It improves our mental health. We all know this. And it's still objectively challenging <laughs> to create and maintain a regular exercise. It just does, it's a hard thing to do, particularly in the context of a busy human life. And, you know, because you're a healthcare care uh, uh, professional doesn't really make that any easier. You know, right. we're still subject to all the stuff that everyone else is. Exactly. So the thing that I find uh, fascinating that I want to talk about here is, and I think you started to, you know, draw that, draw that relationship is that whole, that whole um, bridge between the idea of self-compassion and self-care. They're so related. I mean, you yeah. can't, I don't think you can tease those apart really. No, no. And, and I actually think I get self-care is, is an example of the sort of second part of, of compassion, self-compassion. Self-compassion right. really involves two parts. The first is acknowledging suffering or the potential for suffering and difficulty, right? And and the, the, the second part is what can I do that would be helpful? And that's what the self-care is all about, right? It's all right. about what can mm -hmm. I do to not only address suffering when it comes up, but maybe try to cultivate a lifestyle to make it a lot less likely that it, you know, the avoidable pieces of suffering right. Right. won't show up in my life. There's a lot of suffering we'll have to face that isn't avoidable, but there's also a lot of stuff that we we can avoid if we anticipate it and, and put a little work in on the front end. So that's where the self-care really comes in, I think. Right, exactly. So it's kind of a preparation. And I think, I mean, would you agree that um, that many times even the unavoidable suffering that we're going to face, the, the difficulty that we're going to face, that if we have this foundation of self-compassion, self-care, that we just do better even managing that all of that. 
Well, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm writing, I'm working on this workbook, Applying CFT to Anger right now, and I'm about 80% through with it. And I think in the book I wrote, you know, it's it's bad. Like, like you know, we live in uh, the Northwest uh, where the fire season in the summer is getting increasingly tricky. And, you know, if someone's driving along and flicks a cigarette out of their car window, that's objectively bad, right? If it, and but if it lands in a pond, it's not going to have too much of an impact. If right. it lands in a dry, brittle field, or even a green, if it lands in a green field that's been watered well, probably it won't cause a fire. The problem is when it lands in a dry, brittle field uh, that's a result of a drought. And so the same with our lives. When the stressor hits, it's landing into the context of our lives. So let's say we lose someone that we really love. Well, if that lands in the context of me already being stressed out, not having good relationships, having high levels of conflict with other people I care about, you know, the grief and the shock of that loss can be compounded by the stress of my life. On the other hand, if if I lose, you know, the unavoidable things happen and I lose someone that I really care about, but it it ha it falls within a context of a life that otherwise is generally working pretty well. I'm pretty healthy. Uh, I don't have any outstanding medical conditions or stressors. I have a lot of good relationships and people I can connect with to talk about the loss and who will validate my feelings. It, it's just a lot easier to handle those things. Exactly. So because we are really talking, um, you know, as, as you know, this podcast is around, you know, the idea of self-care and how, um, how we as as helping professionals across a wide variety of of um, arenas of of you know vocation and and work, how can we begin? Do you feel through this idea of self compassion? What kinds of steps? What kind of measures can we take that will help us a be more uh, be more aware of how we treat ourselves and how we relate to ourselves? That then would translate into um, potentially taking better care of ourselves. Do you have any? Yeah. And so you're, you're thinking specifically, how do we become more aware yeah. on the front end? You know, I think actually that, that sort of kind curiosity is one of the greatest tools we can have. It, probably you and, and many people who listen to your podcast will have heard of mindfulness, mm -hmm. right? And mindfulness is just this sort of capacity to be sort of, um, you know, aware in the present moment to notice what's happening in sort of a, a non-judgmental fashion, you know, so you're noticing, oh, look, I'm feeling like this. Oh, look, what's happening. Um, and for me, when I talk about mindfulness, I really, I use the phrase kind curiosity. So I think it's, 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 it's useful to just get really curious about our lives and like notice when, you know, we all have good days and bad days, right? We'll have days that, that we feel great and days that we're struggling um, and sometimes we'll complain about the, the tough day, uh, days and, you know, uh, uh, share about the good days. But I think if we get really curious on the days that are going really well and that we're doing really well, to just pause and go, I, what, what, is, what am I doing? You know, what are the factors that are <laughs> present in this day? How am I spending my time? Who am I surrounded with? What are my contexts, you know, uh, that, I'm, that I'm operating within? What's happening there? And similarly, on the days when we're having a really hard time, to notice what, what are the commonalities there. And what we can do is we can sort of get to know, uh, you know, these different things in our life that for us really move the dial one way or the other. 
hey, I notice if I do this, my days are much better. I notice when this happens, it's much more difficult. And and uh, in, in uh, compassion-focused therapy, we talk about three different emotion regulation systems. We talk about threat, you know, anger, fear, uh, disgust, anxiety, those things, which evolved to motivate us to like observe threats and respond to them. And we have drive emotions that are like uh, excitement, uh, being energized, being interested, that really uh, are there to uh, help us move, identify goals and move toward them and, and achieve them and reward us when we, when we make them. And then there's this third system that we call the safeness and soothing system. And this system is active when we're calm and feeling balanced, and it tends to be linked with experiences of connection. And what we know is that when we can get that soothing system going, lots of good things happen. That narrow focus that happens when we're in threat opens up. We can be more creative. We can be more flexible. We can be more empathic. Uh, we can, uh, we're more pro-social and more compassionate when, when those, uh, those experiences happen. And so I encourage everyone I work with to become really curious in their lives, to notice like when you're in that point where you're like, oh, this is all right gosh, why can't every day be like this? This is great to sort of notice. What are you doing? Who are you around? What are the experiences and activities that bring up that, get that safeness system going for you? And then systematically build those into your life. Wow. Right. Yeah. So to get curious and notice what is helpful and what's not. And so for me, for example, um, and, and I'll identify this, Sometimes what is helpful is not what is easy. And sometimes what is helpful is not what we want to do, right? There are a lot of people who enjoy uh, using alcohol to relax at the end of the day. And a, a, a fair proportion of those people, if they really paused and looked at their lives, would realize that, yeah, in an immediate sense, I, I enjoy the alcohol. But if I back up a little bit, I can see that that is linked with other problems in my life. That could be health problems. It could be conflict with one's family or friends. There are lots of problems that stem from that. So it, sometimes you have to make difficult choices, right? For me, I mentioned exercise before because for me, I've discovered exercise is my medicine. Um, I've, I've got uh, those of you who have seen my TEDx talk know I have a history of sort of anger and irritability. And it's not that I've never like lost jobs or relationships because of that. But it's something that has been a struggle in my life. And I've worked with it in different ways, and I write books uh, on how to work with that. The single most helpful thing in terms of me working with irritability and anger is vigorous exercise because it's preventative. If I work out for 30 or 45 minutes in the morning, I'm cool as a cucumber the rest of the day. Things just don't rattle me, you know, and it's biological. I don't, it's not a decision that I'm making. And on the days, the pandemic gave a really good test of that because I had just started kind of a vigorous exercise program. And even though all this stressful stuff was happening, I wasn't rattled at all. And then after, you know, about six or eight months, I realized there were just a few days, two or three days when I really emotionally struggled during that time. Every single one of those days occurred on a day when I'd skip my work. Well, and it sounds kind of like to me that, that, um, that, the, that whole being curious helped you connect the dots perhaps yeah know, please correct me if i'm wrong but it helped you connect the dots between this activity that you don't really necessarily you're not doing it because of that you're no. doing it because of what's important to you 
Yeah, I, I started yeah. exercising because I turned 50. Right. And I'm like, you know, I like hiking and I like skiing and there's all this stuff I want to do. And I want to I want to keep doing that stuff. So I probably better take care of my body so I can do that. Right. So that itself was a self-compassionate motivation. Right. 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 The essence of self-compassion, by the way, I think is is first you notice whatever the suffering is. But I think the essence of it is the question, what would be helpful? Right. Right. To shift from like being ashamed of whatever the struggle is or avoiding it or whatever to just looking and going, oh, yeah, this 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 is hard. This kind of sucks. Huh. Does it make sense that it was like, oh, yes, of course. You know, of course, I would struggle with this. What would be helpful given that I'm struggling with it, given that it makes sense that I would? What would be helpful in addressing this? And if we can shift from just being fused with being upset about what's going on and being in threat around it to looking at it the way we would the, the suffering of anyone we really cared about and ask the question, right. what would be helpful? That opens the door to using our creativity in the service of making our lives better. So I think that this whole idea of, you know, shifting the narrative or shifting, you know, how we look at something kind of, you know, that whole idea of, of dropping into a space of being helpful to, you know, to self, this action, you know, yeah. kind of oriented thing. Um, I'm guessing that this is probably fraught. My experience is, is that, that many times can be fraught with barriers, you know, yes. that pop up. So <laughs> just saying. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah. So what do we do with that? Do so, think? so I, I think, again, we, we get curious and and we sort of you know you 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 named it right there and we sort of already know this we know that if we're going to do something new and difficult that's sort of outside our regular repertoire probably there're going to be some obstacles that come up but we forget that right we make the new year's resolution and then we do the thing for 3 or 4 days and then something happens right and we don't do the thing and then we think there I mucked it up Okay, and we give up, right? So I, I think the way to approach barriers and obstacles is like simultaneously as we're deciding, here's the change I want to make in my, our, our lives, my life, we sort of assume obstacles are going to show up. And they're like real obstacles. It's not a, a sign of a failing in us. It's not a sign that there's something wrong. It's just that's what happens when you try something new. So when the obstacle shows up and the plan doesn't go as planned, instead of giving it up and saying, oh, I can't do this, we say, oh, of course, there's the obstacle. I wonder what would be helpful in working with this, right? And, and there are real obstacles that I think we don't recognize as real because they have to do with our feelings. And we like to sort of say, well, my feelings shouldn't matter uh, around this kind of thing. But of course they do. You know, I told you again about my my journey to be an exerciser because I know it's so good for me. But I didn't like one obstacle is I don't like exercise, right? The other obstacle is I've got a pretty busy week. So if, for, if I'm going to find time for that to happen, I, I finally figured out the only time it's going to happen is early morning. Well, the problem is I don't want to get up at 6 a.m. to exercise because I'm tired. And what that means is if I'm going to do that, I have to go to bed earlier. So I figured that out. Well, I don't want to go to bed early. <laughs> That's when my free time is. And so I had to figure out how do I structure my day so that I have a little time to do the things I want so that I can be in bed by 10 p.m., which will allow me to get up by 6 a.m. and then do some exercise. 
Now, the other problem is I wake up at six and a lot of times I really don't feel like it. I don't want to do it. So what can I do about that? Well, I finally figured out, okay, I, I, if I give myself a lot of different options, right? I can do this. I can go to the gym. I can run. I can do this. I can do this. And in case of emergency, I have a Zumba 101 DVD where all it does, they put on the good Latin music and I just dance around and it's fun and it's not that much work, but it gets my heart rate going. And that's what I do. If I can't do anything else, but I want to keep exercise, keep the streak going, it's better than nothing. And it's fun enough that even if I don't really, really, really don't want to do it, I can make myself do that. Right. right. So it's this process of in, instead of letting the obstacles stop us in our tracks, anticipating the obstacles, expecting it. And when it happens, instead of think, oh, that's a failure on my, my part, we can be thankful. Oh, I just discovered an obstacle. What would be helpful in working with that? And then we kind of problem solve around that. And once we figure that one out, almost certainly another obstacle is going to come up. So there's a sort of iterative process where an obstacle comes up, we pause, we think, does it make sense? This would, oh yeah, of course. So what would help me work with this? And eventually, oftentimes we can find a place where we can do the thing. We figured out how to address the obstacles to make it possible for us to, to make the change. And it kind of sounds to me, as I listen to you talk about this way of uh, being curious, because basically, you know, we keep coming back to being curious about, first of all, you know, ourselves in general and our experiences, and then actually being curious around this particular uh, obstacle or barrier that's coming up, that we maybe knew something would happen, but we didn't know exactly what it would, what it would be. We don't have a plan per se, but it doesn't matter right? Because yeah. we're, we're staying curious about it. We stay curious about it. That we can also, you know, the, the nice thing is like this self-change process doesn't have an, happen in a vacuum. Actually, there are a lot of scientists who have spent a lot of time studying how to make change happen. So I actually am going to take a moment to plug a book here. And it's not one of my books. Uh, I, it's one that I'm referring to in a, the new book I'm reading. The, Dr. Katie Milkman, has wrote uh, writ, or written has wrote <laughs> sorry about that no. has written a book called literally how to change right i think yeah. the subtitle is the science of getting from where you are to where you want to be and what what uh dr milkman does that is, is so brilliant is, is she speaks to exactly the issue we're talking about um if you just come up with a plan that's a one size fit all plan it's sort of it's not gonna work for a lot of people because we know obstacles are gonna come up and not everybody are gonna have the same obstacles. So what Dr. Milkman did is she went and hit the, the books and looked at the science for a lot of the common different obstacles. So she goes through the process of coming up with a plan on how to change, how to create new habits, how to do these things. And then the book is filled with chapters on for this obstacle, how do you handle this? How do you handle it if you're lazy? How do you handle it if you don't wanna do it? How do you, you know, and it's, it's, it's sort of this brilliant unpacking of all these strategies that have been found to be pretty helpful for a lot of people in dealing with these specific sorts of obstacles. So, so to, to sort of recognize that when we say, you know, when we ask the question, what would be helpful in addressing this? A lot of times, and as, as a scientist, this is pretty key to me, a lot of times the first step in considering what would be helpful is to go and see, well, what have other people figured out about this, right? right? What are, what are, you know, 
how do we address this? And you know, you can learn to do almost anything on YouTube these days. I mentioned the the How to Change book, which has got a fantastic stuff in it. Um, I went to Iceland a few years ago to do a workshop, and uh, my friend Gudrun was driving me around, and we were seeing the sites. And at, at this one place, they had this really cool hand knit beanie, this this hat, and I wanted to get it. But with the conversion rate, it was going to be like $70 US. And I'm like, I'm not spending $70 US for a beanie. And then I got home and I thought, I will knit myself a beanie. I'm going to knit. I want a beanie. I'm going to knit one. And I went on YouTube and I learned how to knit from watching a YouTube video. And, and so I knit myself a beanie. And um, I, I guess the point is, once we begin to identify these obstacles, when we ask this question, what would be helpful? Part of it is... Part of the answer to that is ask, what are the existing supports for people who want to do this? Has anyone thought about or talked about or taught about how to address this type of obstacle? And for a lot of situations, there's information out there that is designed to support us in doing exactly this thing. And so, you know, we should make use of it. It helps. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's out there for a reason, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So I think I think that um, if if we had to kind of if we had to take everything that we've talked about this morning and kind of put it directly into hands of helping professionals and kind of sum up what we've been talking about and saying, okay, this is one of the or two or three of the important salient points to help us as professionals take better care of ourselves so that we can be better in our lives as, you know, partners, as, you know, sons and daughters, as siblings, as healthcare providers, you know, in our, in our work, how, how would you summarize what we've been talking about this morning? So I'd summarize it with a brief practice and uh, a, a tip. The okay. tip is, the tip is get curious. Okay. Right. Commit yourself to sort of notice what are the causes and conditions that tend to pr produce suffering in your life and what are the causes and conditions that tend to be helpful and start collecting strategies that are helpful and and thinking about what might be done about this. So that's, that's the tip. The practice is something that I call compassion in two questions. So what I would suggest people do, um, when they're struggling, Right when you see yourself struggling or having a hard time, or anticipating that you might, right, the characteristic things that we we do that get us into trouble are like to avoid or to criticize ourselves for struggling, those sorts of things. So, first question: When you notice yourself struggling, to pause and ask, given what I know about me, right, what you know, all the things that happened to me growing up how I was raised, the uh, experiences I had, normal, traumatic, et cetera, the culture I live in, all the forces acting upon me, the things I learned, the things I didn't learn. Given everything I know about me, does it make sense that I would struggle with this? Does it make sense that this would cause suffering in me? So for those of you who are listening, I want to tell you the answer to this question is always yes. And the reason the answer is always yes is Although sometimes we can, often we can connect the dots and we can say, oh yes, I struggle with this because of that, um, that experience I had growing up. Uh, sometimes we can't connect the dots. But there, the answer is always yes, because 
our struggles by definition occur within contexts in which they make sense. That's why I struggle with things that you don't struggle with, right? And you struggle with things that Cade doesn't struggle with. I don't know if Cade struggles or not, but do you see what I'm saying? That's why we struggle with different things. We have different backgrounds. We have different sensitivities. We exist in different cultural contexts that, that act upon us in different ways. So I think that first question is really important because it allows us to approach the struggle and suffering and to recognize that it's valid and it's not that something that's wrong. It's not something that's wrong with us. So we, first question, does it make sense that I would struggle or suffer with this situation? And once we've said, yeah, of course, of course, I would make sense with this. Then the question is, the second question is, given that, given that I'm struggling and it makes sense I would struggle, given that I'm suffering and it makes sense that I would suffer, what would be helpful? Now, there's more to that question than meets the eye, too. A lot of times when people think about the question, what would be helpful, they think, what would be helpful to change this situation, to fix it? <laughs> And that's great. And a lot of times we can fix the situation. A lot of times there are things we can do to, to fix the situation. But a lot of the time we can't. A lot of times there's nothing we can do. It's March or April 2020. There's a pandemic ravaging through our communities. We're going through a lockdown. Me as an individual, I can't do anything that. I can't stop the pandemic. I can't change the rules about what has to happen. I can't change the way viruses spread. So a lot of times the answer to the question, what would be helpful is less, how do I change the situation in an immediate sense and more, how do I help myself be as comfortable as possible while I go through this difficult situation? Right. What, what would help me endure to persevere, to be the best version of me while I'm going through this this thing that's just hard, it's just difficult and it's gonna be difficult for a while, how do I help myself weather that storm uh, as well as possible? So it would be more like, uh, for example, I always think about this, you know, in answer to this question is that sometimes maybe the next step would be what would be helpful would be to, you know, call somebody who is a supportive friend to you. Absolutely. You know, something like really kind of simple. Absolutely. And actually, very often, the, the most helpful actions we can take are the simplest ones. They're the most powerful. So, for example, when you said call someone that we, we feel safe with or who cares about us, that's huge. We know. I talked about that safeness and soothing right. system, right? Getting that going is so important. The royal road to activating that system is nurturing connection, connection with people who like us just as we are, who accept us, who value us, who value us. We didn't evolve to regulate our emotions in isolation. We evolved to co-regulate our emotions through caring, caring connection with others. So that's a perfect example of, okay. of a first step in, in dealing with this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think it's, I think it's important. And I'm so glad that you kind of really acknowledge that in this, you know, sharing this exercise with us, that, that what we're not trying to necessarily do is change the situation. What we're trying to do is change our relationship to the situation. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, if we can if we can fix the situation, that's great. Yeah. But that most yeah. of the stuff I I get worked up about is not stuff I can immediately fix. I mean, it'd be very nice, but yeah, <laughs> ain't gonna happen, right? Ain't A lot of the happen. time, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Excellent. Well, I got to say, I really, really appreciate uh, this conversation. And before before we sign off today, I want to just turn it back over to you. And just is there anything else that you want to add to this conversation that we haven't already talked about? Um, you know, I don't think I have anything to add, but I really would. I really would sort of like to reiterate to, to folks, to healthcare professionals who are listening, you know, when you notice that you're having a hard time, and and that voice in your head starts saying, oh, I'm weak or there's something wrong with me or I'm, I'm a nurse, I'm a therapist, I'm a doctor, I shouldn't have to, I shouldn't struggle with this. Um, to like recognize that, you know, that that vulnerable version of you that's responding that way, that's not your fault either, right? That version of you learned that script uh, in various ways. And so instead of buying into it, could we ask the question, what does that version of me need? The version of me that's suffering, what does that version of me need? The version of me that's feeling bad about suffering or feeling weak or feeling self-critical, what would help that version of me be safe? So it's about shifting our relationship, not just toward the suffering, but towards the part of us that's doing the suffering, that's feeling the suffering and asking, what does that version of me need? So instead of uh, getting locked into the suffering or, or, or beating ourselves up, we're shifting to activate this sort of caregiving capacity that we already have. That's why you're a caregiver. That's why you're a nurse or a doctor or a physical therapist or an OT or whatever. You did that because you want to help alleviate suffering. And so we want to harness that deep motivation you already have and, and direct it to yourself when you're having a hard time the same way you would give it to your patient, to your client, or anyone else you loved and wanted to help. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's all about curiosity, isn't it? Huh? It really is. It, I think curiosity is the secret sauce. <laughs> well, all right. There you have it. Well, Russell, thank you so much. I really um, appreciate our conversation today. And um, this is, um, you know, I, I love the, the practicality and the usefulness of being able to intervene on our own behalf, for sure. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. If, if we don't, it might not happen. You know, there's a good likelihood it won't because everyone's lives, you know, are full. And and part of that also, I, I do want to play put in a, a final plug for that other flow of compassion, too, because another thing I see in healthcare professionals, and this is the one I struggle with, actually. I've done a lot of work and I'm much better at self-compassion than I used to be. Where I struggle, what I struggle with is asking for help when I need it <laughs> and not feeling like a burden and not, you know, and, and recognizing that, that actually there are people who, who want to help me because they care about me and, and being able to accept that and receive it and not feel like I'm weak for needing it. And so I think self-compassion and that our ability to ask for help when we need it and receive compassion from others, you know, can intersect. Uh, as we deal with the tricky things that come up in our lives. Absolutely. Wow. Well, there you have it. Stay curious, <laughs> huh? Absolutely. Yeah. All right.